under your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Jimmy Clark. They are a changing, folks. It only took 20 years, but on Wednesday, Ronald, or excuse me, Roland Griffiths, who has been researching the health effects of psilocybin, the psychoactive ingredient in magic mushrooms, well, Mr. Griffiths, since 2000, has been looking into the potential health benefits of this psychoactive substance. He announced the formation of the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research at Johns Hopkins University. You got that right. Not some hippie university. Johns Hopkins University, the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. It's believed to be the first facility of its kind in the United States. And according to the university, potentially the largest such academic setting in the world. It will be Griffiths promised at a press conference in which he sounded simultaneously relieved, excited, and exasperated. Completely new and more of the same. What Griffiths means is that he and his team, at least seven experts in psychiatry and behavioral sciences, will continue looking at how certain psychedelics might help people suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, nicotine dependency, opioid addiction, alcoholism, anorexia, Alzheimer's disease, and even Lyme disease, among other conditions. But in the nearly two decades... Hopkins researchers have been at it. Academia and the feds, in the form of the FDA, have been slowly warming up to the medical potential of these drugs. Last October, the FDA granted psilocybin breakthrough therapy status. Researchers like Griffiths lauded the decision as a significant step, one that potentially makes it much easier for them to study and perform clinical trials using the drug. Now they're fast-tracking the process with an injection of cash. And again, for those who missed the last minute or so, like my two comrades that have been here for the last two hours, how does that work? (laughs) Y'all have been up here all afternoon with me since four. And now my show begins, (laughs) and I begin it. It's ten after, and you're nowhere to be found. I ran up here. I'm here. It's almost like y'all don't know how this works. (laughs) I'm here, man. Anyway. I had to make him shut up. It was announced today. Johns Hopkins has opened up a psychedelic research wing. How long do you think it's going to be before there are like psilocybin pills? 
I don't think long, based on this story. Yeah. The FDA is now fast-tracking this. Because Money is being given by the university. Because they found out that it works, right? Yes, exactly. For things like nicotine dependency, opioid addiction, alcoholism, anorexia. Anxiety? PTSD, anxiety is Good. Yeah, all sorts of things, even Lyme disease. I'm sick of people telling me they're... Then here's the other Yahoo. How do y'all, like, <laughs> seriously, we're 11 after. You kind of leave just hanging, hanging huh? But here's how I opened up the show. Johns Hopkins has opened up what they're calling the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. Mm-hmm. And it's, like again, Johns Hopkins. Not some... Center for Psychedelic Research? Yes. Wow, it sounds like Timothy Leary came up right. with that. Right, and helps people with all sorts of different things. The FDA has approved and granted psilocybin a breakthrough therapy status because it's been shown to be the most effective, one of the most effective things to treat addiction, for instance. And what's fascinating about this, I've gone over it before, it's not like somebody takes a dose of psilocybin and like eats some magic mushrooms or whatever. But this is actual psilocybin, just in pure form. Mm-hmm. It's not like they just take it and all, all of a sudden I don't want to have tobacco in my mouth anymore. I don't want to smoke cigarettes anymore. Right. The way it works is you take the psilocybin, and in your hallucination, in your psychedelic experience, if you have what they call a God-like moment, some people describe it like seeing an angel, seeing God himself. Some feel like, oh, I'm one with the universe. You have a... So basically they're saying they are high. No, but it's not no, quite the same thing. it's different. No, because there are people that can take it and feel euphoric, but they don't have this experience. And what's happened is, number one, if people have the deep spiritual experience while on psilocybin, and they come back and they're trying to treat some form of addiction, like tobacco, for instance, they stop like that. Okay, 84. It's amazing. They can stop cold turkey. It rewires the brain and the way they think, even. like the. It's one thing to have a chemical hook to a certain drug. And you're addicted to it, but it's also the psychological hooks. Yeah, that that, get you and, back that's, into and that's actually more dangerous. Mm-hmm. All right, Dr. This Wood. apparently, when you have this spiritual breakthrough, it's how AA works with alcoholics. They have you go through the steps to have a spiritual breakthrough. That's, that's where I was going so with this. This drug can induce a spiritual breakthrough, it doesn't always. It can essentially get you to the other side of your psychological hooks for whatever. <laughs> Uh, behavior or addiction you have that's harming you. It's fascinating. And they did research where they went back to these people like 10 years later. So do you still cherish that memory, your experience? And people, and these are often brilliant people, like all sorts of different types of folks, like clergy members and doctors and all sorts of types. The how do you consider that experience while you're on psilocybin? They consider it one of the most profound spiritual experiences of their lives. So I, it's not the same thing as, oh, I took a bunch of opioid pills and I'm high now, or I smoked some pot and I'm high now. It's different. You know, I don't necessarily disagree with that. Right. Okay, the, how I'm going to put this, I see you thinking. Your cogs are turning, you know. Use, think of having a dream. Mm-hmm. And you're, it's, it would be like a dream state instead of being high. And it would just be more, uh, more profound. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so it's not really high. It's like a dream state, but it, you're awake and it takes that to get there. Right. And a high definitely can come with psilocybin. You get a euphoric lift and these sorts of things. And people take psilocybin, they don't get the spiritual breakthrough. And that's all the time. But it does sort of 
push people, psychologically speaking, towards that. Well, and, and the reason I say that I, I don't necessarily disagree with that is if it if it's doing something chemically in your brain. I mean, our brains work with chemicals yes, and, yes. you know, electricity firing through synopses and things. I mean, the brain is awesome. It's the only thing the brain can't understand how the brain works. <laughs> hey, think about that for a second. That'll mess you up for a while. You'll lay us awake at night going, wait, wait. Oh, Clay said something. Got that really does make sense. But I, I know of just in my personal experience, Yeah, I know of people uh, in my life that have had an actual or what they would classify is just a spiritual experience. I yes. went to church and and, yeah. and we make fun of the the televangelist and you know mm-hmm. hitting somebody on the head and they fall out and faint and hit the floor. Mm-hmm. But I know people that I mean I really trust and they're like this something happened. I felt something in my body and yeah. they change overnight from being a drunk or you yes. know you know, cussing all the time or, or, you know, being a deadbeat dad and they change their life and they never go back. And it's like something actually happens to them. It's just, it's almost like a a massive shift forward into a new way of thinking. And you would say, well, that's, you you know, you got the Holy Spirit is is something they say, or you got some. And we should describe something's happening in your brain at the same time. Whatever it is, it's a real experience. Right. And it changes. It really changes people. And, up until this point, and this is why I'm, I'm so, like, a little bit of light regulation that's common sense, fine. But when you get heavy hand with the government, you start prohibiting things outright, you might be shutting off the world to some innovation that could help people. This is the, most of human history was authorities holding people back. I believe, for instance, China had, like, an early predecessor to the steam engine, long before the Europeans ever got close to it. What did the Chinese authorities do? They literally threw them off a cliff. Well, see, Joey... Because it was keep, against the law. You just keep forgetting, Joey, mm-hmm. that government knows best. Yeah. <laughs> because if, if you decide, I want to try this to see if it will change me, that means you've got personal responsibility. Well, and is, we can't have that. Is government made up of angels? Yes, of course. Oh, they're they're angels. That, I mean, that's what they tell or me. Demigods, or well, I mean, it's what governments. Well, have the said big before. ones. I mean, <laughs> like you know, it's like the Russian czar before the commies took over. Uh, the, he was like he wasn't God quite, but he wasn't man. He was like in that in between middle kingdom. Well, that's sort of the, area. the president, the leader of the house. Mm-hmm. I mean, the speaker of the house and the leader of the you know the senior senator. I mean, that those are. I mean, they're not quite God, but I mean, cocaine, Mitch. Pretty close. <laughs> you know? Uh, but it's been real hard to open up, say, research facilities and agencies at Johns Hopkins until this point. It took 20 years. These activists and scientists have been trying to do this, walking a tightrope, because of the DEA. The Drug Enforcement Agency classifies psilocybin and other psychedelics as Schedule One drugs like cocaine. <laughs> Looking at you, Mitch. And heroin. And it, they oh, claim... And marijuana. I know. That's, that's nuts. <laughs> and they, the DA claims that, yes, no currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. Were they trying to rhyme that day? <laughs> Somebody tried. Oh, good Lord. Uh, it is terrible. <laughs> Jesse Jackson wrote that press statement for him. <laughs> it's terrible because it's a class one, and I can't go out and drink. I can go across the street and buy a 12-pack, but I can't. Because if I do, I'll do something stupid and probably mm. wake up under my coffee table again. Sure. And but 
Oh, that's just ridiculous. And one of the cruel irony of the drug war here is, of course, that to reschedule it from Schedule 1, no no medical use, you have to research it in order to prove to them that you should drop it. These researchers are saying uh, drop it to Schedule 4. But in order to prove that, you have to do clinical trials. But because it's Schedule 1, they won't give you the money for the clinical trials. So catch wow. 22. Uh, this sort of tautological, oh, that's a fancy word, can, wow. tautologically confusing, endlessly bureaucratic, and seemingly paradoxical, Kafka-esque, can we keep going with wow, all? It's a catch-22 with loopholes here and exemptions there. But it's safe to assume the grand opening of an official academic facility in Baltimore is an explicit acknowledgement by relatively high-status people, no pun intended, that psychedelics are inching toward the American norm. This year, psilocybin was effectively decriminalized in both Denver and Oakland. I was about to turn to all Dave Chappelle. Oakland! Um, (laughs) No! Yeah. And there's also a full-blown desire to legalize it in some form in Oregon, alongside national lobbying efforts to propel it further into the public consciousness. This is clearly becoming more mainstream, said Mark Hayden, executive director of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, otherwise known as MAPS a nonprofit that advocates for psychedelic research and education. There are many inadequate mental health and addiction treatments today, and we need new medications to come down the pipe. This is how it's done. It's well it's a well overdue initiative. Due to a systematic lack of available funding, the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research is coming to life largely thanks to a seventeen million dollar uh, grants and private donations. Theirs is a strange and growing group of givers, which in this case consists of the Stephen and Alexandra Cohen Foundation, who their causes range from children's education to veterans care, as well as a popular podcaster and tech bro, Tim Ferriss, a co-founder of WordPress, Matt Mullenweg, the guy who created Tom Shoes, and a run-of-the-mill hedge funder. There's nothing that helps public build public support for a once-controversial or fringe idea substances or individuals in america like lots and lots of money so i i think this is great and and but you know what they're gonna they're gonna run up against what everybody else has run up against they don't have big pharma money behind them true and see that's the problem how do you prove a negative it's easy for me to say there are no medical um uh what's the terminology you use there's no medical uh uh, what you call for no psilocybin. currently accepted medical use in a high no potential, medical use high for, potential for abuse yeah I couldn't think of the word no medical use, use plenty of abuse <laughs> no use pure abuse no use pure abuse same thing with marijuana there's no proven medical well if you don't run any test or use it then you don't know if there are or not and it, how do you prove i mean it's hard to prove a negative right. it just shuts once it you off. just stick it out there well and it's it's all because of a cultural fluke a culture war from the 60s three for madness that man. nixon's aides admitted that they pushed this stuff in order to freak the silent majority out dude in 1910 you could buy heroin out of the sears and roebuck mm-hmm catalog really syringes and i'm talking black tar freaking heroin from sears there goes your diarrhea as a cough suppressant (laughs) no i mean you laugh but that's i mean pneumonia was a big thing and 
heroin actually does is a cough suppressant. No, it kind of a little overboard, <laughs> but it has an advantage. You can't say it has. Yeah, and no a nuclear advantage. bomb is a fire starter. That's <laughs> exactly right. right. Yeah, right. you know. So I mean, there is a line there, and and it should be, you know, I mean, where we are today in our society, I suppose. But the thing is, do you trust the people that are writing the rules? No, no, you don't. I don't. Seth mm-hmm. doesn't. Hell, no, none of us do. Well, because it's like they make up the rules based on who's at the top of the hill. Who's got the power? I'm going to make the rules. I'm all for rules that come out of basic common sense. They come, what type of game are we playing here? We're supposed to be playing a game where it's liberty and justice for all. It is peace, liberty, equality, the classical liberal creed. The individuals pursuing their self-interest, individuals pursuing their happiness, trying to figure out what's the best way for them to make their best life. Some of that might involve putting certain substances in your body. We do it already, plenty with pharmaceuticals. And yet there's this weird little branch of drugs that got caught up in the culture wars of the 60s. No, that's, that's dangerous. That's that hippie stuff. And just think about how far we we would be now if they that would not have had have, have had happened back then. Mm-hmm. It's just it's ridiculous. Yeah, no, and there was actually government research in the fifties, and I think even before the war, where they were looking into LSD, they were looking into psilocybin, they're looking into psychedelics in general. And yes, there were also government experiments with LSD and certain <laughs> things like that. Not saying everything was good, but this is the nature of experimentation. I mean, that's where MDMA came from, right? Uh, In the 70s, I think, they were given to people. Well, I know that's also now being pushed to help in treatment of, say, like, PTSD. Because it allows people to disassociate in a session with a trained counselor and relive and think through the thing that was the great trauma that is tying them up. Mm-hmm. It allows them to process what happened to them and really think it through. So, it, And what's amazing is that these drugs, unfortunately, became party drugs. Where, I mean, some people might take them and they have a great time and whatever. Might feel bad the next day. Some people take them and they go way too far. Well, then why in the hell is Ambien? <laughs> I mean, why is I that know, legal? Man. Do yeah. people... I mean, what happened to my loaf of bread? I don't, I don't know this from personal experience, but I know enough stories. Do people not take Ambien? And sleep eat. And... No, I use that to get hyped up with. I remember some uh, a friend of mine. He was prescribed it, but he took like two bars of Xanax. Just one night, he was real stressed out, and he had been prescribed it. So he takes two of these bars, and he's sitting there on the couch, and he gets up, goes to the microwave. He gets one of these big muffins you get at like Costco or Sam's or whatever, big chocolate chip muffin. Pops it in the microwave for eight seconds, mm, nice and gooey chocolate, big mm-hmm. muffin. <sighs> And it beeps, the microwave does, and he just kind of looks at it, and I look at him, and he goes back to continue to make more food. I can't remember what the other food was. <laughs> and I open the microwave, and I look at him, and I go, you going to get your muffin? He goes, what muffin? <laughs> <laughs> like, dude, you just literally grabbed the muffin from that package there, you put it in the microwave, like, you're going to eat it, you're going to eat it. He goes, I didn't do that. You literally did that 30 seconds ago. And it's like, that's completely legal because it makes them relax. It's for anxiety. And to be not anxious, it's easiest just not to remember. (laughs) There you go. Well, I mean, that helps. Plus, you got big pharma behind you. (laughs) You know? I mean, it helps for a while until you wake up the next day and then you remember and you got all the same problems. You got to solve the problems. Yeah, you know. 
it's just a, a point of frustration because it's the one of the most I think outrageous examples of the government going too far and how long how effective the propaganda was that's lasted for a generation. It's amazing to me. And you can go so far down that rabbit trail. I mean, to everything, the food triangle. Oh, Lord. I mean, why, why do you in the food pyramid? Or? Why do you think you've got to do what's in the pyramid? Well, that's what they taught us in school, mm-hmm. and now it's different. Oh yeah, now I'm all they changed, it. dude. I remember they they way added too many carbs. Yeah, <laughs> they added popcorn. I remember the egg uh, substitutes. They were huge about twenty five years ago. Because eggs were killing the everybody in the United States were going <clears> to <throat> die from eating eggs because the cholesterol is too high. Pork was another one. They and and I'm a beef farmer. Mm-hmm. I'll I'll say that up front. But it was probably the daggum beef industry that funded all that crap for them to say, "Nope, pork's killing you. Eat red meat. <laughs> Eat beef." Right. I mean, seriously. And and they've actually destroyed pork. Pork does not even taste like pork. Hmm. Anymore. Well, a few farms doing the heritage hall. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, but you pay out your rear end you're for that. You're right about that. You know, yeah. you're paying like four and a half dollars a pound. Yeah, that for pork a chop. You're, that pork chop you're getting in the regular grocery store does not taste like one of those heritage. No, chops, it doesn't. Really. You have a farm raised pork chop, and you're like, wow, <laughs> what is that? That's sweet. That's good. I mean, yeah. it tastes like pig. The closest I've gotten to that was I ate uh, a, a wild hog one time. We. Uh, well, really? Somebody different. killed it. We skinned it. We uh, gutted everything. One game it. and all those things can. I mean, they they eat fine, I suppose, but they eat pretty good, don't they? But <laughs> like, I don't know. Uh, I'm kind of scared of wild thing. hog. I, yeah, you I don't know what those things have been eating. They got some nasty. I mean, pigs like. I mean, they they're like the garbage. They like right. eat a buzzard. Yeah. I mean, right. they're garbage disposals. They'll eat anything Apparently, that's not moving. It's the same thing with bear. <laughs> like if a bear eats a, it's eating a lot of fish, for instance. Especially if they find rotten fish or whatever, and they eat that. Bear meat is going to be nasty. You smoke that bear meat or you cook it, it's going to smell like a fish market. But if you find a bear that's been snacking on blueberries all summer long, that's going to be some good eating. It depends on what they eat. I ain't eating bear. You wouldn't even try it? No. I'll eat anything. I'd try it. That's like a dog with, like, Bigger fingernails. No. Bears are not like dogs. Bears are not like dogs. They are. They are bigger fingernails. You watch too many Jungle Book movies. No, I'm serious. You watch too much Winnie the Pooh. You you always complain about Sesame Street, and now you've bought into the Hollywood version of Blue and Winnie. Look look it up. I think think that bears and dogs are the same genus, actually. They might be. So they're pretty close. I mean, in different species, but I mean, they're. A bear will eat you. Dogs are a not dog going to eat you. Do. No, a wolf will eat you. A dog will eat you. Uh, a desperate dog will eat you. A wolf is a dog, Joey. I, <laughs> They're just not bred down. Do we need to go back into our genome class again and have Dr. Ford teach you? It's Dr. Wood. Dr. Wood. Yeah, and domesticated me. house cats are the same things as lions and tigers. They're not the same thing, but they came from the same I agree, point. but my God. A bear is a wild, a black bear is a wild animal. You don't have a cat. You ought to see the way they look at you. I know. When you wake up and they're sitting oh, there they're and they're very just judgmental. Like, they're, they're like, mm-hmm, they're com- I'm just waiting for you to die. They're completely unimpressed. And when they make those weird noises looking out the window at birth, like they start chattering and oh, chirping and stuff. Yeah. Oh, no, they got that instinct in them. I if you it. die, they'll eat you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I know. They'll eat you. Yeah. Anyway.
There's no love there. We need to hit a break here. <laughs> I don't have know I, how have we I got blown on. your mind with the dog as a bear? No. <laughs> I, I, I imagine they're in the same family, but a wild, say, black bear that's been eating berries is not the same thing as your dog. What's your dog's I, name? Which one? Both I, of them. I got a new one. Yeah, you got a We got Sophie and his name's Scooby, but I call him Booby after Booby Whitlow. I like that. Well, Booby. Sophie and Scooby Booby are not the same thing <laughs> as that bear in the woods, no matter how much you call him Blue. You've never seen a wild dog before. Wild dogs are bad. I'd eat a wild, I'd kill and eat a wild dog, too. Oh, see, that's just nasty. I hear they're sweet though. Yeah, <laughs> tastes like chicken. Well, you're you're nasty. But we already knew that. <laughs> we got to hit this break. Coming back more of the Joey Clark Radio Hour with Spotlow and Southernwood. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Special shout out to Express Fitness 24 7. Woo! Especially the Zelda Road location, the Hillwood Shopping Center. That's where I'm going. I'm working out. I'll be there tomorrow morning, right at about 9 30. Got a heavy leg day ahead. Working out with the co owner over there, Alex. I've loved it, folks. It's, you know, I'm looking a little better in the mirror. I'm enjoying that enjoying being stronger and just feeling better and more confident but it's really a, a nice way to anchor myself and have a regular schedule in the morning it's a mental discipline exercise more than just a physical exercise and that's what i get out of it but there's all sorts of equipment state-of-the-art equipment cardio machines weight machines free weights power racks and you can get those compound lifts in that's what i'm doing but check them out you go to express fitness 24 Com, Express Fitness, the number 2424.com, and find out which location is best for you. But why don't you just stop on by to the Zelda Road location? You'll work out with me. Promise not to put you through hell too much, brother, brother. That said, um, a bit of a serious twist on something we were talking about earlier. For those who missed it, we're bringing up how so many of the critics, the woke scolds. Okay, wh- what are you saying here? Woke. Okay. Woke. W-O-K-E. Oh, like I woke up. Like the woke people. No. Who are scolds. That means you know what's going on, I man. got that. And then the second word you was stay woke. Scolds. Scolds like. Scolds somebody. Scold. Okay. Woke. Scolds. That is ridiculous. Woke word people here. who scold people. My life. That's right. Because they know who to scold, man. Right. They know who the sinners are. They know who's still being all sleepy, sleepy, sleepy. They can throw shade Rub the sleep at anybody. Out of your eyes and wake up from that stupid, greedy daydream of yours and get woke. 
without dehumanizing the white male capitalist patriarchy has been. They put you on blast, Jack. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to say any of those words ever. But, <laughs> yeah, no. yeah, but anyway, the show is lit. It is lit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 100. Fire! 100. Hey, now, now we're going backwards. <laughs> anyway. Backwards is better. Dave is it swast though? <laughs> I'll, I'll go way back. I'm trying to be serious. Too far. All right, hold, stop. Dave Chappelle's comedy special has not been popular with the critics because they're a bunch of woke scolds. They're a bunch of, I think, the new Puritans. They know what the truth is. You know, we are the pure and chosen few and all the rest are damned. There's room enough in hell for you. We don't want heaven crammed. Not here on this earth, at least. And so... They have been just knocking Dave Chappelle's comedy special, Sticks and Stones. I love Sticks and Stones because it was a cathartic. It was more than just, oh, he's laughing where, you know, he's making fun of marginalized groups or he's being provocative or he's being transgressive or all these words. He's being rude and crude and blah, blah, blah. It was cathartic. Because so many of these topics, whether abortion or gun rights or the hashtag MeToo movement, are serious subjects. And they're tough to talk about sometimes when you're not pointing out the ridiculous examples of it. There are serious examples. So it's mm-hmm. real tough. So in a culture that I think takes itself too seriously, a politics that certainly takes itself too seriously, to have somebody step into all these topics that are minefields and make people laugh just felt so good. It was like a weight was lifted off my shoulders. It just shows you everybody's not dying. And I think it is a mistake... For people to look at comedians, especially really, you know, it's one thing to be kind of a hack, but to look at top-notch comedians or to look at the funny people in your life and kind of consider laughter, humor, these sorts of things as, you know, not necessarily unimportant, but not as important as the really serious stuff in life. I think that's wrong. And my source here is a guy I've mentioned before. It's one of the most meaningful books I've ever read in my life. It's by Viktor Frankl. He is an Austrian psychiatrist, and he's a Holocaust survivor. Lived from 1905 to 1997. He was in the concentration camps. And he pretty much lays out part of that book is the ability to laugh stands as a vital protection of sanity and a mighty form of resistance to inhumanity. There's nothing more powerful against a group of Puritans or a group of authoritarians uh, what H.L. Mencken said, one horse laugh is worth 10,000 syllogisms. One horse laugh is worth every essay or lecture or study you could find. If you're able to laugh at the powerful, laugh at the people trying to control your life, that goes a long way to keeping you sane, at least. It might not get rid of the people controlling you completely, but it at least gives you some of the power back to go, hey, I might be in a crappy situation, I can do nothing about it, but at least I can mock it and laugh mm-hmm. at it. It keeps some power to you. Yeah. And this really is, the book, if you haven't read it, folks, it's a 1946 psychological <laughs> memoir, Man's Search for Meaning, one of the most profound and vitalizing books ever written. So much wisdom in there. And he really thinks about the people in the concentration camps. He's reflecting on the interacts of rebellion by prisoners there who tried to maintain their dignity, sanity, and zest for life in a concentration camp. For instance, he writes, humor was 
another of the soul's weapons in the fight for self-preservation. It is well known that humor, more than anything else in the human makeup, can afford an aloofness and an ability to rise above any situation, even if only for a few seconds. He recounts how he awakened a friend to the life-saving value of humor, an acquired skill like any art, through what is essentially a disciplined implementation of creative prompts. I practically trained a friend of mine. This is Victor Frankel I'm reading. I practically trained a friend of mine who worked next to me on the building side to develop a sense of humor. And by the way, they're in a concentration camp when he's doing this. I suggested to him that we would promise each other to invent at least one amusing story daily about some incident that could happen one day after our liberation. He was a surgeon and had been an assistant on the staff of a large hospital. So I once tried to get him to smile by describing to him how he would be unable to lose the habits of camp life when he returned to his former work. On the building site, especially when the supervisor made his tour of inspection, the foreman encouraged us to work faster by shouting, Action! Action! I told my friend, one day you will be back in the operating room performing a big abdominal operation. Suddenly an orderly will rush in announcing the arrival of the senior surgeon by shouting, Action! Action! Telescoping from the particular to the universal, Frankel considers how his experience in the concentration camp illuminates a broader consolation for the human struggle. Frankel writes, The attempt to develop a sense of humor and to see things in a humorous light is some kind of trick learned while mastering the art of living. Yet it is possible to practice the art of living even in a concentration camp, although suffering is omnipresent. Everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances to choose one's own way. It is this spiritual freedom, writes Viktor Frankl, which cannot be taken away. That makes life meaningful and purposeful. An active life serves the purpose of giving man the opportunity to realize values and creative work while a passive life of enjoyment affords him the opportunity to obtain fulfillment in experiencing beauty, art, or nature. But there is also purpose in that life which is almost barren of both creation and enjoyment, and which admits of but one possibility of high moral behavior, namely in man's attitude to his existence, an existence restricted by external forces. And obviously none of us are in concentration camps, thank God. Um, there are people in prison. There are people in detainment centers. They're not concentration camps, AOC. Sorry. But, you know, I do try to put myself in just the individual shoes of people trying to escape the violence of Central America. And I'm not talking about people taking advantage of the system, but folks who are just like, I got to get away from this. Like, the gangs there threaten to kill me and my family. I got to leave. And I do wonder, in general whether you're trying to escape violence from Central America or you're being oppressed by people in the government of China or you're longing for freedom in Iran or you're here in America and, you know, our problems maybe aren't as big as theirs, but, you know, the man's got you down or you don't like your job or, you know, somebody's sick in your family. I mean, all sorts of things outside of your control that keep you from really feeling like uh, you love life that something's getting you down, the one way to get out of that is by learning to mock the situation, learning to laugh at the situation. It does give you that freedom to sort of go, hmm, I can imagine a world where this isn't the case, but since it is the case, 
You're how laughing. do I? Uh, yeah. How do I deal with it? You're laughing. There's you're a power in the moment. There. You get lost, and it's just a wonderful thing. And I, whenever I don't laugh as much, I start to worry. And when I see some aspects of our modern culture having the inability to laugh at themselves, there's something wrong there. Yeah. There, that's the one thing dictators and tyrants can't do. They can't laugh at themselves. Yeah, and I think that's where you get to the point that you get... And I don't know if it's necessarily narcissism or what it is, but that. but you, you take yourself too serious that, you know, everything hinges on where you are at the stage of life you're in. And I think that's another thing. People forget that there are stages of life for every season there is a reason i mean that's just a fact and there are times in your life where things are going to be just going great and there's going to be times in your life look here it sucks and you just you get through it but it's the attitude that you approach it with and and the way that you take every situation that's presented in front of you you know that makes a difference in that again it's the broken record over here that's up to you the way you take it you can do one of two things you can either say you know what this is my lot in life for right now life sucks mm -hmm. and i've got to go through this and but you know i'm going to get through it best i can and it, at some point it's going to get better or you can look back and say it's your fault that i'm having to do this mm -hmm. it's your fault that i'm having to go through this trial right now it's your fault that i can't pay for this right now i mean you can blame somebody or you can just say you know what it life just sucks right now. well and it might be true that somebody has you put know, you in that situation but all you're doing by right. just blaming them is giving them all the power over your life yeah you can either you, they're all laughing at you okay you can look at it that way or you can start laughing also mm -hmm. and be like we're laughing together yeah. So then you're not laughing at me. We're laughing together. Well, it always stuck with me. It's a great interview. I think it was Dr. Phil's new podcast. He hit on Brad Williams. Brad Williams is a midget. He's a dwarf. Um, little person. And he learned from an early age to laugh at himself. And the person that taught him that was his father. From He said he remembers when he was a little kid. His father would make like midget jokes. Dwarf jokes, elf jokes, all these jokes. He's going to hear it. Get used like, to it now. And at first, he was like, you hurt my feelings. He's like, no, son, you're going to hear worse in the world. Yeah. You need to learn to take the power back and laugh along with them. And what Brad Williams does so well in his stand-up and every interview I've seen him in is he owns the fact of who he is. And that is yeah. kind of funny. It's different. It's not wrong. It it's is just, what it is. It's just different. And when he owns it and he's okay with who he is... It gives him power back over his life and ability to control the situation despite being, you know, very tiny. Well, I, I mean, I learned this lesson when I was probably, mm, I'd say, 20, 21 in that area. I, I went to work at the place I went to work with. The mechanic that trained me was about five foot four, and he had one eye. Hmm. And we called him the one-eyed penguin. <laughs> was he drunk all the time? No. <laughs> it, it, it just he, he looked like a little penguin. I mean, oh. he was like 5'4". Yeah. And, and I used to do stuff to him. I mean, I, for y'all out there in Radio Land, I'm 6'3", and I've got big old long monkey arms. And he would go up to the truck and like be trying to get a ladder off the ladder rack and climb up on the bumper and all this. And I would reach over his head and grab something and when pull it When he was it off. reaching, did it sound like... Eh. 
<laughs> and but Johnny, he would look at me and he would say an expletive. You, <laughs> and uh, but we laughed about it. You know, we had a great time. And and right. every time he bumped his head, I would laugh at him. I said, "Now you know how I feel, Johnny." <laughs> and he would say, "You," and then you know he would cuss at me again. And every time I bumped my head, he's like, "I'm glad I'm four foot one." And, and, <laughs> but he could laugh at himself. And right. I mean, but he he wasn't self conscious about it. He did, didn't mind. It didn't bother him. He didn't let other people determine that. Oh, you're less of a person because you're abnormally short. In which right. he was. I mean, right. he wasn't, you know, even five. See, I I think five eight is short, but that's just kind of from, well, like just, my family you're too. Just freakishly tall. I mean, the, well, the women in my family are your, like five nine. Yeah, and you with your ostrich so, neck. Yeah, it's just like and my sexy legs. You don't even have to. You, you are a great spy. <laughs> you could just look around the corner without <laughs> moving your body. No, the top of his head. There's like two foot of that. You hurt my feelings, Joey. Yeah. I need a safe space. It's good for you. Oh, <laughs> uh, it was just like earlier during the break. We were talking about how I don't. I just learned how to use fabric softener. Yeah. You yeah. know. I mean. Wait. How do you? Well, how I, how did I? I used to put it all together. That is like the most ridiculous thing I ever. Did you never think once to read the well, instructions? I was like, hey, you throw it in when you wash your clothes. You wash your clothes in the beginning. You blah blah well, blah, blah, the, blah. The, the washing machine we have at our—I don't really use fabric softener, but the washing machine we have at our place there's a there's a little spot for fabric softener that's delayed. It does it for you. Well, I'm old school, man. I, I don't do that. Uh, I got a crappy one, and I've learned. That so you, you wait midway through the wash. Well, yeah. Dude, if you wait until the rinse cycle and put it in, your clothes smell like flowers. <laughs> this crappy flannel smells so good right now. I mean, I dude, this happened like a week ago. I mean, I opened my 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 closet where my clothes, my pants are, and it's just like, oh, it finally works. Yeah, it's so great that your Texas Chainsaw Leatherface T-shirt smells like flowers. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Oh, you can look trashy as long as you don't smell it. No, look, look, it raises this question though Seth it raises this question you are 36 okay all right nobody 36 years old mm-hmm. all right you found out last week how to use fabric soft yeah what was the epiphany i mean what was that moment where you realized oh this is how you do it. I mean, was it was it a mistake? I read the back of the thing. <laughs> you actually read the instructions. I read the instructions because I always thought that you just put it in together. So you've been washing clothes for like 20 plus years now. Wasting fabric softener. And you've probably stained a few No, things. nothing. It no sex or smell because I want that good smell because I look rough. And <laughs> you smelling good isn't like a thing that I need. And so funny, man. I'm clean and my stuff didn't smell like flowers. Now it does. Because I pulled this flannel out of my book bag and I put it on and I keep getting a whiff on myself and I'm just like, oh. That's why men need women. Yes. 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 It's very true. Rose is growing up. I'm so happy. I actually read something. I was revisiting. Um, it, you made me think of it. Men need women. Um, I was reading some H.L. Mencken. Went back to his collections. And some of the stuff is just so good. He has all... Like, he put together this book that's like all of his writings over the decades when he was a journalist and an essayist and an author of nonfiction work and uh, he put it all together in different sections so like one section is like just homo sapiens and morals and the types of men and then there's a section on women hmm and the first one is the feminine mind and I'm obviously I'm not going to sit here and read the whole thing but uh, the beginning's pretty good. Men need women. Right, Clay? 
Yes. I hope Rowena is listening. Reading from Minkin. This is from, it was written initially in 1918, revised in 1922. So this is essentially 100 years old. Mm -hmm. Quote, a man's women folk, whatever their outward show of respect for his merit and authority, Clay, always regard him secretly as an ass mm-hmm. <laughs> and with something akin to pity. His most Sounds right so far. <laughs> his, his most gaudy sayings and doings seldom deceive them. They see the actual man within and know him for a shallow and pathetic fellow. In this fact, perhaps, lies one of the best proofs of feminine intelligence, or as the common phrase, makes it feminine intuition. It, it just, it hit me, like, this was true 100 years ago. I think it's been true for thousands of years. And it's been true since the Garden of Frickin' Eden. <laughs> uh, the, the marks of that so-called intuition are simply a sharp and accurate perception of reality, writes Mencken. A habit or habitual immunity to emotional enchantment, a relentless capacity for distinguishing clearly between the appearance and the substance. The appearance in the normal family circle is a hero, a magnifico, a demigod of a man. The substance is a poor Montebank. A man's wife, true enough, may envy her husband, certain of his more soothing prerogatives and sentimentalities. Man, I like how Mencken wrote. And we don't write like this. We mm-hmm. don't talk like this anymore. I just love the language. So. She may envy him, his masculine liberty of movement and occupation, his impenetrable complacency, his peasant-like delight in petty vices, his capacity for hiding the harsh face of reality behind the cloak of romanticism, his general innocence and childishness. But she never envies him, his shoddy and preposterous soul. Mink could never pull any punches, man. He, in fact, he went a little too far in public, people, once they were already down. I don't know. That's pretty spot on. Right <laughs> He's got another one in here in regard to women, about uh, w- women worrying too much about their uh, their husbands cheating on them. It's so good. It's so good. I don't know if I have time here to uh, to go into all of it. But essentially the idea is that men might think about it, but they ain't going to do it, ladies. They ain't going to do it. Here's, I, we have time for a little bit. The average man of our time, again, this is in 1918, 1922. The average man of our time and race is far more virtuous than his wife imagines him to be. Far less schooled in sin, far less enterprising in amour. I do not say, of course, that he is pure at heart, for the chances are that he isn't. What I do say is, in the overwhelming majority of cases, he is pure at act, even in the face of temptation. And why? For several main reasons, not to go into the minor ones. One is that he lacks courage. Another is that he lacks the money. And another is that he is fundamentally moral and has a conscience. It takes more sinful initiative than he has to plunge into any affair save the most casual and sordid. It takes more ingenuity and intrepidity than he has to carry it off. It takes more money than he can can conceal from his wife in order to make it work. A man may force his actual wife to share the direst poverty, but even the least vampirish woman of the third part demands to be courted in what, considering his station in life, is the grand manner. And the expense of that grand manner scare off all save a small minority, a specialist in deception. And I just, he goes on to essentially say if a woman or a wife knows their husband or their man's bank account, you know exactly to what degree he might cheat. <laughs> I just love it. Eh, there's probably some truth to that. Yeah, I think so, that's too. That's totally me. No, actually, that's kind of me. Uh, yeah. I'm not married. I don't have a girlfriend, really. But, uh, like, 
too open to do something. Like, Joey, why aren't you out on the town? Like, you know, you're 30. You got a cool job. But people know my income, you know. But all this applies to me. <laughs> Co job that doesn't pay. Yeah. All this applies to me. I don't have the courage to go talk to every woman I see at the bar. I don't have the money to really put on the grand performance of wooing them. And also, I'm basically moral and have a conscience, but it's not like, oh, Joey's so wise. It's more like, no, Joey's learned from hard experience, learning the hard way, uh, that it usually doesn't work out that way. Oh, I'm going to go out to the bar and meet somebody. Nah. There goes three years. But yeah. I mean, (laughs) but we need women to teach things like fabrics. Yeah. Here's the thing, though. I mean, men need women, but women need men, too. Yeah. And that's the biggest lie that's been sold to the women since the 70s and the, the eruption of the uh, uh, the women's movement and and women are equal. Yeah, they're they're equal in the sense that, that yeah they can pretty much do anything with their brains that men can do, but but women and men are different, and we need women for a different reason. And it's not just I'm I'm poking fun at to know how to use fabric softener. Now it was my right. mom that told me he's like don't put that in yet. Right, but, same here. But <laughs> we need we need women for a different reason. But women need men for a different reason. I mm. mean, they need somebody to protect them. They are the weaker vessel. I mean, that's that's what they are, and it's, that's not taking anything away from them personally. But they need somebody, and they need that strong, you know, figure, somebody that says. I love you because of who you are. And a man needs a woman that says, you know, I'm going to affirm you. Thank you for, mm-hmm. you know, providing for our family and caring for our family and taking care of it. That's that's like, I mean, that's an, the animalistic need right. that human beings have. Well, and it, the, it's sort of the, the motherly instinct, the friendship instinct, the affirming, like you just said. But Minkin has another theory. It's also in this life. Even with war being more mechanized and boring and outburst of violence, like there's no real, not for most men, any adventure to go on. You might go on a road trip once, you might, but the women, only adventure allowed to men really is finding a woman. See, women, women, women are too yeah. smart to do that. A woman that. would never have gotten on a raft and went across the Mississippi River right. and went out and said, "All right, there's a bunch of wild Indians over here. Let's go see what happens." Come on, come get a me. woman is. They, they think too much about. No, I have to protect the family. I have to protect the kids. And yeah. a man's like, ah. Oh, Hell, it'll be all right. Give me a beer. (laughs) But there is always a frontier to go and discover, and that is the love of your life is the point. It's more of an adventure. That's the scariest adventure ever. Yeah, it's it's a lot scarier than, say, climbing the Matterhorn. (laughs) Anybody? Anybody? That's the end of the show. Thank you for listening, folks.